This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 498 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Johnny Walker and Jason Tushin. Now, we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, and I had no idea how pertinent it would be today releasing this after the Afghani withdrawal. As a first responder, I'm seeing our men and women of the military really hurting, seeing their Afghani colleagues left behind, and also questioning, was what we did worth it? Were the people we lost, the limbs, the mental health issues worth it because of this? Of course, the answer is yes. But... There is a polarization yet again. So there are no better people than Jason and Johnny to illustrate the camaraderie, the purpose, the life saved when we were deployed. Obviously, in this case, it was Iraq. This is a parallel, obviously, to what happened in Afghanistan. So as a quick backstory, Johnny, obviously that's a pseudonym, was an Iraqi citizen who became an interpreter, ultimately working alongside the SEAL teams. Jason was a command master chief in those SEAL teams. So you get to hear two different perspectives when those lines intersect and how then the U.S. SEAL teams fought to get Johnny and his family back to the U.S. Before we get to this incredibly important conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find, which is so important at the moment. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. 
So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Johnny Walker and Jason Tushin. Enjoy. Jason and Johnny, I want to start by welcoming you both to the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us on, James. Thanks for having us, man. Like Jason says one time, Johnny, he's so ugly to work with MPs, that's why we pick him up. And <laughs> now I can say we are so ugly to, to be in any podcast except you. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> So you have got two very, very unique stories. Um, I want to ask where you are in a second, but the way we're going to do this, I'd love to just kind of walk them through parallel. So I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, a young Iraqi boy, a young American boy, and then kind of where your, where your paths cross and then, you know, where you are now. So let's start with that. Where are we finding you both on planet Earth today? Uh, I guess I'll start. The, uh, right now, uh, I, I retired in uh, my Zodiac turned into a pumpkin uh, January of 2018, and uh, myself and another team guy, another Jason, uh, he and I... Jason Troy. Yeah, JT, yep. Jason Troy. Uh, he and I were going through a transition course that uh, founded, funded by the uh, Naval Special... Uh, by NSW, the foundation we have, and uh, we were sitting there going through a resume class, and it's like, screw this man i'm like i am not gonna go work for anybody and and he's like yeah i agree and uh so he and i you know had worked together uh in iraq in fact we met johnny or i met johnny for the first time and uh we just decided to start our own business and so we started a, a consulting business uh we had a couple mentors who uh one was a vet really good dude he uh they had a venture fund and they asked us to run some events for some really high net worth people. And it was some, I mean, like legit uh, global <laughs> ballers that uh, I'll leave some of the names out. But uh, one of the guys we met uh, at the event was a really humble uh, guy. He came from a uh, Sicilian immigrant, grew up kind of, you know, blue collar as hell, but absolutely brilliant. And he had started, you know, he had started a business, sold it, started building computers in his garage in Silicon Valley. I mean, right out, the complete stereotype on that and had multiple successful exits and he had another company going. And, uh, that, and he asked uh, JT and I to come out to this company and just take a look at it, uh, help, help coach him and the executive team and leadership and culture and inject some discipline into their processes, which startups tend to, uh, lack. And, uh, yeah, we started doing that. We hit it off uh, real well. Started showing up there one day a month and two days a month and two weeks a month. And, and in the fall of 2019, he asked us to come on full time as executives. And uh, concurrently, they had a sister company called Scilabs uh, Incorporated. And uh, in April of 2020, uh, Gio, the owner of both, asked me to take over as CEO of Scilabs. So currently, I'm... Uh, <laughs> A Navy SEAL master, retired Navy SEAL master chief who's CEO of a tech startup out of Silicon Valley with a couple, you know, some just brilliant, fantastic uh, engineers uh, scattered throughout 
uh, North America, Canada and Texas and whatnot. So it's uh, kind of like a hard right turn to the surreal a bit, but uh, that's, that's my focus right now, that and uh, working with J-Dub on a few uh, items that hopefully will come to fruition here in the next week or two. Beautiful. Now, are you, yeah. are you still in the San Diego area? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to stay in San Diego. I need to be within, uh, you know, five miles of the ocean. Otherwise, something bad will happen to me. I guess, you know, <laughs> I, don't know. I, I get a little nervous when I'm not around water. So, it would surf family, kids, and myself. Uh, I don't know. Fantastic. Well, Johnny, same with you. Um, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? San Diego. So the plan is to uh, to stay in uh, Virginia Beach. And thanks God, I love East Coast. I love Tingai East Coast. They're my family, but Jason Tushin saved my ass. When he looked at the paper and they said, oh, Johnny, his, uh, he chose uh, Virginia to stay there for a living. He says, fuck no. He stayed with me <laughs> in San Diego. So we stuck since 2009 until now. Beautiful. Well, I want to start at the very beginning then because you have a powerful story to, you know, being here let in the me U.S. Correct, let me correct one thing. Please. If you don't mind. Yes. It's not my story. It's our story. It's me, Tushin, all the team guys and family. So I, I, I strongly recommend your story, your guys' story, not my story. So thank you. Absolutely. All right. So then... What I like to do is start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and uh, how many siblings. Okay. So uh, can I answer in Arabic? Just joking. <laughs> so born in 1964 in a beautiful city called Mosul, north of Iraq, north of Baghdad, 400 clicks. Uh, we are three brothers, three sisters. Uh, my father, he used to be uh, an Iraqi old army sergeant. My mom, she's house, doing house things. And uh, I cannot say it's poor family, but I cannot say it's between middle class and poor family. Uh, childhood, a crazy childhood, troublemaker, slingshot everywhere. And yeah, I mean, beautiful life. Yeah, beautiful. Well, one in one of the areas in the book, you talk about um, Mosul when you were young. The religion not really factoring in the Sunnis and Shiites who were you know living side by side. And then there's a very kind of, I guess, troubling element when you talk about. And then Saddam starts putting his own version of education in school. So if you wouldn't mind, paint the picture of early Iraq, because I'm sure it's very contrary to, to what we were told via the media. So just let you know, I am Sunni, supposedly. My wife, Shia, and we never discussed the difference because we are not part of us serious practice Muslim. We believe and we respect religion, but at the same time, we have our own vision about it. But in, in Saddam's time, especially when in 1980, when started the war with Iran, uh, you can tell he put the religion virgin just to lead the sheep. 
you know, because one of the must things when you go to face the death, if you have that face, no matter if it's fake or not. So he is succeed so far. And if you remember that time, there's no internet, there's no YouTube, social media, and we have only two government channels and he just pushed his propaganda in our head. And if you look at it in that time, in Saddam's time, is is basically one family run all the Iraq. It is like, it's like slavery. I mean, they do everything they want. They own everything and include our life. And I mentioned that before. There is one time in 1981, uh, beginning of the Iraq-Iran war, I remember they bring dead body from the front battle between Iraq and Iran. And that guy, he's not killed by enemy. That's Iraqi guy from my city, killed by assassination group who is the uh, position behind the front line. So anyone run away in any reason, they kill him. And they said his dead body, the military police, Iraqi military police, to his family, and they collect money, price of the bullet. They kill that person from the family. So this is like a small, small action to tell you what's going on in all that time. It, it, it's so crazy. It's so unfair. And maybe this is one of the reasons, like, step by step, people, they start getting ready for change. And this is what happened in 2003 when American forces came to Iraq. No one considered them. They want to take over the country or they are invade the country because Saddam, he did what he did for all, all this time for 30 years. Take that patriot loyal from people heart. Kind of wild too. If you Sorry, if you think about America at that exact same time in 1980 when uh you know, Saddam's stirring up this hatred towards Iran. I mean, he had a huge cheerleading section in America in 1980 because we just came back. We just had that, you know, Iran hostage crisis. They were this religious, fanatical uh, country that we hated. And Saddam, you know, at first glance was, uh, you know, to the American public, I remember this as a kid, like, wow, you know, here's Iraq looks like a cool country. You know, it's not, they're not a bunch of religious fanatics and, yeah, they're going to war against Iran. Good, you know, let's help them out. And uh, how wrong were we in that one, you know? Well, it's an interesting perspective. I just watched, uh, it was a very, you know, basic Netflix special, but I think it was How to Become a Tyrant. And it had Saddam, it had Kim Jong-un, it had, you know, Adolf Hitler. And the trajectory was almost exactly the same, you know? And what's so sad is there's pictures of, you know, the British royal family with Adolf. There's pictures of, you know, Saddam rubbing shoulders with these these great people and Kim Jong Un and Il and you know whoever the the latest dude is, <laughs> you know. So it is it's it's crazy how they don't just hoodwink a lot of the countries they actually hoodwink internationally. Yeah, it's nuts. It's uh, and history. I mean, it might not repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. And you see, uh, a lot of those same uh, you know, catalysts happening in the world today. You know, just put a different a different face on the enemy you know today it's covid or whatever so. yeah no absolutely divide and conquer is a huge thing that i'm seeing and and if you look at it i just want to add another point 
in 1970. I mean, you, you have, we, we have all of us smartphone. Just put any Arabic, any, any country in Middle East or Third World, just put YouTube 1980, 1975, Lebanon, Afghanistan, you will see all of them. They have Western clothes, uh, very good life. It's a crazy, revolutionized life. But after 1990 and up, uh, things getting going to the worst, getting to the uneducated, going to more fake religion, because none of the religion... Uh, tell the people <clears throat> to accept to be slave for one leader or one imam. And this is all of that, all this happened because of the Brotherhood Muslim and the Wahhabist organization and Muhammad Abdul Wahhab in 1767 and Brotherhood Muslim, they kind of adapted that idea in Egypt and they started growing that idea and they started recruiting a lot of people from all the Middle East. And one of the result is assassination Sadat. And I think 1979, and the guy who killed Sadat, he flew to Iran and Iran built street in his name. So basically this kind of things, not to start today or yesterday or 10 years ago, start hundred, hundred years ago and being recruiting, but soft, deep recruiting. And that's why you, if you look at it, five, six years ago in Egypt, uh, Brotherhood Muslim, when they control us, you can see the blood everywhere in Tunisia and other countries. Thanks God, CC and other people, they took off those people from the rules. Same thing in Iraq now. In Iraq, Sunnah and Shia, who is in the government, both of them, they run the country with Islamic ideology, came from a brotherhood Muslim. And that's why we are so fucked up in Iraq, because of those people. And we can talk about it more, loyalty to Iran, all this kind of distract agenda in, in Iraq. I just want to mention that. Sorry, guys. No, don't apologize. And I think that's something that I've seen over and over again. If you reverse engineer any of the hatred in the world, it's it's under the guise of religion or you know whatever it is. But ultimately, it's just a quest for you know greed and power. And you look at you know obviously what we're seeing in the Middle East. You look at the uh, you know, the Crusades and the witch trials and you know every, name every religion. I mean, even Buddhists. <laughs> have psychopaths in theirs which is you know hard to understand but but yeah i mean the, i think all the all the core philosophies teach love compassion kindness but yet what we see with these extremists is the polar opposite and this is the unique things the relationship between me and the seals and american forces there is no religion involved involved in it uh, is only patriotism is only doing the right things and i think Part of, I have to be selfish now, part of my successful understanding journey, that's why I didn't consider the American, they are Christian, I am Muslim. I just consider they are good people, 
they try to fight bad people. And I'm not talking in politic level, president. I'm talking in soldier on the ground. Absolutely. Well, Jason, to you with, um, you know, again, your early life. So tell me about where you were born and your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. So yeah. we can kind of set that parallel going. For sure, man. My parents both came. My mom uh, grew up on a farm with a bunch of, I think, 10 brothers and sisters. Uh, fairly humble means. My father uh, grew up uh, in Wisconsin as well. My mom is from a small town called Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Uh, my dad, you know, his father passed away when he was, I think, 12. And uh, <clears throat> he was the oldest of uh, five kids. And so as a uh, you know, him kind of the, the man of the house, if you will, with my grandma. And uh, so they grew up with real humble means. And uh, in Wisconsin, they uh, I was born in 1970. Uh, you know, good, solid, middle class, Midwestern family and values and work ethic. Both my parents uh, had it, you know, instilled in myself and my brother and sister. Uh, they're both younger. Uh, fantastic work ethic. And uh yeah, like Johnny, uh, good family life, but uh, I was a bit of a troublemaker. Um, not that, uh, you know, in a malicious way. I just, I hate it. Like, if, for me personally, if, if the crowd is going to the right, I'm going to go to the left. And if they shift back to the left, I'm going to go to the right. I mean, I just I think for yourself. I've always been one to think for myself uh, and do my own thing. And, uh, particularly, you know, in the eighties that rubs people the wrong way oftentimes. And so, yeah, I was, uh, just angry and against the, uh, status quo forever. So, you know, I was a punker and in high school tattooed up and everything else. Uh, and then, uh, I kind of floundering around a bit, not knowing where I was going, uh, knew I was going to do something. College bored me to tears, uh, so I quit that after about a year, uh, working at, as a chef at Benny Hanna's for a while. I saw that on your LinkedIn. I was, I was, yeah. uh, you're not, not the, it's not normally the, the track to go Benny Hanna and then into buds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I quit college, man. So I was like, okay, I got to get a job, pay rent and all this crap. And, uh, so I, you know, I looked at in the one ads when we had those and, uh, oh, Benny Hanna's is hiring bus boys. Cool. So I went over there and got the job busting tables and washing dishes. And about two weeks in, uh, the manager came up, you know, he's like, Hey, bus boy son, you know, we want to have a, one American chef. I'm just like, fuck yeah. Sign me up. And, uh, white beverage. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I started, uh, working there, uh, trained up to be a chef. The restaurant in Milwaukee closed down. I moved to, uh, I got transferred to Lombard, Illinois, uh, suburb of Chicago and, uh, got to work for the head head, Benny Hanna chef, Mr. Cotto. He was, uh, my sensei, if you will. And, uh, it was a, it was a trippy, like hindsight. It was fantastic. It, it was, I mean, it was lonely, but I was the only native English speaker, uh, in the restaurant. And so, and I, you know, I'm from Milwaukee. I didn't have any friends in Chicago, certainly not Lombard. And, uh, and so it was weird, you know, like kicking it with the, you know, the Thais and the Filipinos and the Japanese or the Ecuadorians or the Mexicans or whomever else, uh, it was a cool environment to grow in, but it, like it was lonely. And then uh, one night, uh, I was back home. Actually, I I quit, went over to Paris for a while, goofed off for about a year, or uh, excuse me, a month. Uh, came back home, and, I, and then I was like, okay, now I'm a little bit lost. And I was 
just engaged in self-destructive behavior, drinking way too much and get into fights and whatnot. And uh, a buddy of mine happened to be a uh, good 50 pounds heavier and uh, about six inches taller. And he was a guy I had done my tattoos. He sat me down one night and just like, look, dude, you're going nowhere. Uh, you got two choices. I'm going to either take you, you're going to go to the recruiting station tomorrow and sign up for something, or I'm going to drag you in there uh, by the nape of your neck uh, and you're going to sign up for something. So your choice is yours. Uh, I told him to kiss my ass and, you know, he laid me out and, uh, next day I joined, uh, signed up for the Navy. <laughs> With a big black eye. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Now, before we go back to, to Johnny, just quickly, Jason, with your history, um, were you an athlete up to that point? Were you with the yeah. elements of that set you up for ultimately passing buds? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I, you know, my mom did not like the water. She was scared of it. You know, didn't really, wasn't comfortable swimming. So at a really young age, uh, she got me into swimming. And so about age five, I started competitive swimming. And, uh, you know, genetically, I'm, I mean, I'm just under 5'10". So uh, your, your lifespan is finite to about 18 in that, if, with that kind of height, but I had really good success, uh, competitive swimming and I, and I loved it. And, uh, I think it's a, as a, you know, I look at my time in the SEAL teams and I did a, a couple stints as instructor, you know, running hell week and whatnot. And I think there's something about swimming that is, uh, it's just such an honest sport, right? So you're sitting in a pool for hours a day, five days a week looking at a black line in the bottom of the pool and you know, you can, it only, you know, if you're given a hundred percent, you know, the coach can look at you and go, Oh, he's putting out, he's doing hard, but you know, if you had stuff left in the tank or if you left it all in the pool and, uh, and you can't really lie to yourself. So, you, and, and that really carried over when I went through buds was that, you know, I knew where my thresholds were. And sometimes it was the right choice to just go under the threshold, but uh, you just, you, you just, I thought swimming gave a, a level of mental toughness uh, that was really carried over in life. Beautiful. Just speaking of that, before we transition, um, did you see that they had a uh, refugee team in the Olympics this year? It was all refugees, and swimming actually was one of the events that they did very well in, I believe. Yeah, that was cool. That's a really interesting concept, and. Uh, while the Olympics, I think, were kind of a bust in many ways this year. Uh, you know, I just people want to see people compete. They don't want to get their. I don't want to hear your agenda. I want to. I want to watch football players play football. I want to watch basketball players play play basketball because there's art in that. And say, in the Olympics is that times ten. I mean, it's you know, I want to see the individual, regardless of the country, you know, succeed. You want to see underdogs. You want to see uh, hard work pay off. I don't want to hear your thoughts on any political agenda, you know, you're going to have to lead, perform and uh, see what you got. Absolutely. Well, one yeah. of the other events I think that was, was powerful was the, one of the men's high jump where the two athletes decided to share the gold. And uh, I, I forget what, what the reason was behind it, but I mean, it was a very emotional moment. Well, that's a well, good. Yeah. Cool. That was really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of, of high jump, that was a kind of deliberate segue. So Johnny, um, you, you as an athlete found yourself in basketball and, and high jump. So kind of talk me through the success of that. And then we'll talk about your career aspirations and then that'll take us through to where you guys met. So it's weird. Like my life story is kind of weird because everything connects with something. And this is start with two. She went to 
release his anger in restaurant and he find a, a Chinese Japanese guy to pick him up as American guy being a chef. For me, my family, they send me to play basketball because every day I'm attacking another neighbor with a slingshot, broken lights, broken classes, all this bullshit things. So they have a deal with my cousin. He's played basketball, famous in Iraq. And they ask him to take me to the club and they will pay him for his drink and dinner alcohol. So imagine at that time there is no like, Oh, this is haram, this is bullshit, no one give a shit. So anyway, so I went with my cousin, and I remember I went with no sandals and slingshot uh, hanging my neck. And they went there, and they, the kids, they called me like redneck, village, whatever. They don't let me play. So I started using my uh, my only weapon, slingshot. Kick all the kids from the, the shit, from the field. And suddenly, big ass guy came walking to me, and it's like shit. It looked like Run First Run, the movie. So before I run, I hit him in his head, bloody, and start running. So anyway, I didn't know he's the CEO of the club, Futua Club. So next day, my cousin he makes some deals agreement with them. He's gonna be. He will never bring the slingshot. This and that. So they allow me to play again. And when I started playing it, all the kids, they kissed my ass just to avoid the violence I have. And they give me the ball all the time. And I found myself through that game. And I started in love with that game. I started living it every day. I cannot wait until next day to go there. And... I remember first time I I bugging my family to buy me a, a shoes. This last uh, uh, rubber's shoes is not even basketball. Uh, I remember I hide it underneath my pillow and I slept. I couldn't sleep because I just want to put it on and play basketball and show those kids. And when I went, I couldn't play with it because I used to run uh, with no shoes, nothing. So anyway, so every day after day, start developing myself, start having fun on the game, start building normal relationship, not challenging relationship, you know, the alpha male. Start like communicating social things, you know what I mean? Like talk, talk with them as a friend, not they have to follow me, they have to confess that I am the leader, all this bullshit things. And if you look at it, if you play basketball, the famous team in that time, and I thought this is championship team, is Harlem team. And I started watching Harlem team when I can in the TV, when they show it in the TV. And, of course, you if you watch Harlem team, you have to watch cowboy movie, John Wayne's. You watch cowboy movie, you have to listen to country music, Kenny Rogers. So all this kind of things, with the all few resources, media resources we have, building a smaller dream in my imagination that one day I will live in land of freedom. I will live in that place. I feel in that time, and this is funny, 
I belong to that kind of life. I have like a small, small wood house. You know, all our houses built from concrete or this and that. Uh, we don't have wood house. One time I will have wood house in the front of the lake on the mountain. And I have my jeans, my hat and hunting, fishing, all this kind of things. And this is in all my dream. But as I mentioned to you guys, our situation at that time in Saddam's times and Iran-Iraq war is so desperate. It's taken everything we believe, like taking life from us. We don't hear before like there is someone killed. This is like new in our culture. And the start became more and more and more. And also, as, as you, you guys know, the result of the war is facade and corrupt on the system. And the start we have in that. And I remember like in Mosul, in my city, if you go to any shop and you tell them, hey, I promise you I don't have money. I promise you I will give you money after one week to buy some stuff. Oh, okay. You don't need to promise. You're good. This kind of starting change, it looked like when Johnny Heil, our friend, he told me, like Johnny, in 1917, I said, uh, culture, we don't take the key of the car to the house. We leave the key inside the houses, this and that. So anyway, so the culture for us start change very faster. And of course, we bring foreign worker from different cheap or poor country they came and they bring facade too. And this is kind of all these tools start destroying the community culture. And this is kind of make me realize where I'm going. One guy with his family on all Iraq, there is no fear, there is no justice, there is no hope, there is no dream. And if you talk about anything, they will put you in the jail or they kill you. So fuck that shit. And the basketball and the high jump is give me enough motivation to survive. But also, you know, you cannot have your food through those things. I remember in maybe in 1987, I make Iraqi record. For young, for high jump, I jumped two meters. And with basic training, with simple tools of training and the coach. And I remember the president of the club. He is like uh, Iraqi general, army general, big rank in Iraq. He met all of us and he says, who take uh, the first uh, level and the on the sport, this is only Riyadh, my real name. And he says, give them a gift. So it's like, awesome. So I took the card. Next day, I went to, uh, we have like very famous shoes shop called Pata. And they give me shoes. Like, what the fuck? The I have shoes. They're under and, my pillow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and only shoes, nothing else. So this is the understanding of the sport in my country in that time. So I was like, fuck it. I'm done with it. And the same time, I started going to my cousin's house. And it's happened that my wife's house, 
next to them. So I started looking at her, started feeling in love with her from the first time. And we started having love stories. It looked like another chain. Do you remember when we talk about basketball? Yes. Play basketball. John Wayne movies, Kenny Rogers, that chain. And after that high jump, and I I took off my roots from violin to motivation to sport. It looked like this is chain continue when I met Beda, my wife, and started live the love. And I did the crazy, stupid things. So anyway, in 1991, uh, we married. And this is give me staple, give me feeling that I can survive. But after 1991, Saddam's another adventure had the Kuwait. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but we pay the price. We are the Iraqi people, not the government. When we have the sanction, I remember we we just hear about some like sweet things, cake or bakery things. We never eat it. Soda, we never drink it. Like people, that when they when they drink soda, they take picture with it. They have selfies. So anyway, starts struggling, working uh, eighteen wheelers, truck driver, uh, cement silo truck driver, good uh, CD shop, taxi, all this kind of things. And I remember one of the funny things happened in my life. One time I'm drinking like there is no tomorrow, and the owner of the sh- company I work with, he says, Riyadh, can you go to Baghdad right now? We have to have like emergency uh, to transfer some staff from Baghdad to Mosul. Told him, bro, I'm drunk. He says, when you are not a drunk. So I was like, okay, sound good. So I took the truck and they went to Baghdad and I'm driving like crazy. And in, in, in Iraq, we, uh, we changed the fuel tank. And instead of like the original one, we put like double. So we don't buy gas uh, from places we don't know. Maybe there's bad gas or something. So anyway, I went to Baghdad. I went to the, what do you call it? Uh, when they have the weight, when they know the weight. It's ca- oh, yeah, like the weigh station. Yeah. Yeah. And I look at the guy in the control room. He look, look at to me. He's like, I'm fucking weird. It's like. Can you just give me the weight? He says, what, what do you want? So just the fucking weight. I'm anger, with anger, like my voice. He says, yeah, but you came only with the head. Where is the trailer? <laughs> so I forget to hang the trailer with it. So anyway, so it's 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 hilarious life. Uh, my brother uh end up with uh, some issue with the PDI Saddam. He have uh, gen- a generation, uh, generator uh, mechanic shop and one of the PDI Saddam will bring it to him and he fix it to him and he tried to not pay him what he deserved and end up my brother beat the shit out of him and they put him in the jail for three years and I'm busting my ass working for three family, my family and my mom and my brother, wife and kids. 
and we saved money and then barely we survived. And in 2003, American forces, when they came, it's like this is the only hope for all our situation. And this is, came from all my heart and my struggling all these years. Like, if you look at it, all your hope in your life, all your dream in your life, and the life you live in it at the bottom is kind of destroying everything step by step. It looks like that is big ass machine destroying you. You know what I mean? And when American forces came, no one considered those people, they are in battle. Those people, they came to destroy the country. Everyone, they are so happy to have them. And you can see smile on the kids' faces, women faces everywhere. So, yeah, it was such an interesting perspective, and thank you for kind of walking us through because I think the the normality of life prior to the more recent conflicts is is something that's kind of been lost in the narrative. I think. But going to you, Jason, for a moment. Um, what I would love to do a question I always ask anyone who's been deployed into combat is is a, a two part question. The way that war is portrayed, I think, to most of us who who never served in in the military capacity, is a very polarizing view. Either it's totally pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, or it's very anti-war, baby killer mentality. So when yeah, you went through buds, obviously you you qualified, um, you know, all the SEAL training. Um, when you first got deployed, wherever that was, was there a moment that regardless of the politics that sent you there, you had an aha moment where you saw the horror that was going on. I mean, more often, I think a lot of us misunderstand to the Afghani or to the Iraqi people um, that not that you needed justification, but it kind of solidified that what you and the men to the left and right of you were, were doing was, you know, was worth doing, was ethical, regardless of, you know, whatever sent you there in the first place. Yeah, I think when, uh, like even any selection process, but it's really critical for uh, any of the special operations community, whether it's the military side or law enforcement or whatnot, uh, it's really, you know, you can have these physical benchmarks and everybody's aware of that at BUDS, like it's really physically and <clears throat> mentally hard, but equally as important is uh, ensuring people have the right values and ethics and they're aligned uh, because when you're like in a, in a combat situation, you literally can get away with murder if you want, if you are, have those screws loose in your head and that doesn't do the country or the mission any good. If you've you got a couple social pass on there and, uh, and so it's, it's so critical to screen for that, you know, hold people. Okay. You got these physical and mental toughness standards, but you need to have these ethical and, uh, values-based standards as well and if somebody can't fit into the team uh, or they got a character flaw that is not fixable uh, you have to cut out that cancer quickly and you know stuff and you know with with conflict you they, they highlight things in the news that regardless of branch of service uh, individual soldiers or small groups of uh, military people do bad things and it it, it it's just terrible uh, i think in iraq but that said, <clears throat> when you get over there, you're, you know, you're, you're ramped up and uh, you really, it's easy to fall prey to thinking everybody is a bad guy. Everybody's a savage, you know, and uh, you, you quickly realize, and, and this is where 
John, like people like Johnny were so invaluable. It's, you know, especially since he was an Iraqi, uh, you realize that people around the globe, you know, regardless of race, religion, or any other stupid ass stereotype we put on people, uh, you know, parents want safety for their kids. They want, people want to have their power on 24 hours a day. They want to have, you know, access to fresh food. Uh, you know, they want a safe, normal environment. Uh, and that's most people. And then there's a subset that gets all the new news and attention that want to disrupt that and impose their twisted vision of the world on everybody. And once you realize that, then, you, you, you know, that, okay, it's only a handful of people are really bad. Uh, it does change your perspective a bit. You do want to, uh, you know, I had this conversation with a, a buddy of ours, Drago, who got another fast, he's another fascinating story, a uh, Polish immigrant uh, and team guy. But uh, we were talking one day and he, he's just like, oh man, you know, I, I, uh, I just really want to see these people happy and healthy. And I mean, he's, and he's a, I mean, I, I don't want to be on the receiving end of anything uh, he's doing. I mean, he's a badass, but uh, it was, it was really interesting seeing somebody like that go, you know, I'd really like to see the kids playing in the street and not to worry about getting blowed up. I'm like, you know, that's a really cool perspective. And I think uh, as you spent some time there, we did shift that. You, you start going on targets and, and going and uh, you realize that like the, the, there's the families are innocent, man. Most often, more often than not. Uh, and you want to protect them. And at the same time, you want to really, it pisses you off even more. And you want to, you want to see those bad guys, you know, kind of, dudes uh put away or dead more preferably and uh so i think it it takes a it took a few uh iterations you know and seeing it and then having uh a mentor if you will a cultural mentor like johnny nearby to uh you know because he's an iraqi and i would take a bullet for him so i mean how many more people are like him or uh maybe not as brave or as crazy but um you know want the same positive outcome for Iraq, you know, and I think it was the majority of people did. Uh, that's kind of when uh, things shifted a bit. Yeah, well, that, you answered the second part of what I would normally ask as well, which was, you know, the compassion and kindness and humanity that you saw amongst the, you know, the Iraqi people. And obviously, Johnny's going to going to tell us a lot of that side too. But um, with just going back for a second with the selection, that's something that I've talked a lot about in the first responder professions. Like what breaks my heart is when, and I've seen some, I've been part of some amazing departments and the other side of the spectrum, the amazing ones, the bar was set high and it was held high. And you either get there or you don't, tough shit. The ones that had no bar, but the ones you saw, lack of brotherhood, lack of accountability, poor fitness standards, all these things. And when I look at some of these things, like, you know, the Derek Chauvin case, you know, of course, there's a much bigger picture than just that one individual. But like you said, these are professions where we have to have a crucible at the beginning. So without getting too, I mean, it's not, it's not even political to me. It's just a training and accountability thing. But what's your perspective on the first responders having the bar set like the special operations community and maintaining it throughout our career? Yeah, you can't, uh, you have to set the ethical standard higher. You have to be above reproach. If you if you have a uniform on that, whether it's it's serving in your community as a you know as a first responder or if you're in the military representing the U.S. overseas and, and back here in the states, you need to be 
above reproach. And the accountability should be that much harsher if you fail in that. You, you need to be held to a higher standard. You need to hold that. Too often, uh, whether in the military or in law enforcement, you see the wagons get circled around somebody uh, who might may or may not deserve it. You know, <clears throat> I mean, everybody's entitled, obviously entitled to due process. I mean, that's what we fight and die for. But uh, you, you, you have to just take a step back and look at it objectively and go, now what this person did was wrong and it's not holding this standard that we've clearly identified as the standard uh, and, and they need to be held accountable. Concurrently, though, if you're going to set a high standard, you also need to have uh, training that, you know, allows that per that team, that group to uh, achieve those standards and, and maintain them. And I think uh, it, it's all kind of interconnected, right? You can't uh, not give, you know, the, let's say the, the Minneapolis Police Department the tools to do their job the proper way uh, and hold them to a high standard. But, you know, you can't hold them to a high standard without having the right tools and training to make sure they can do that. And, uh, yeah, so I, it's, God, it, it's so critical to hold people accountable like that. And, again, we just – we it's we circle the wagons when you know it's a cop or a military guy or whatever does something uh wrong instead of doing that just take a step back and look at all the facts you know and then if it is something you know morally egregious then hammer them don't you know they should be ostracized and cut out of the organization Uh, i think and i we don't do that or we don't do that well you know yeah, well, I think it's a, it's an important perspective, and we hold you guys. You know, to me, I hold you at the pinnacle, and it's funny because it's a two way street. So many of the, the your community say no, police and fire, we hold to our standards, and I think that's just it. If you just blame the individual, then you're missing the whole environmental picture, and you know. So by having high training, uh, hiring standards, maintaining annual fitness standards, or you know, weapons qualification standards, whatever it is. But giving these men and women the tools too. If we're working them into the ground and they're sleep deprived and overworked and stressed out, you know, they're not going to perform at the highest level. So to me, modeling SEALs, PJs, whoever it is, and seeing that you guys have the best equipment and you have nutritionists and psychologists and people that create the most elite tactical athlete, that's what, that's the lens that we need in the first responder profession because more often than not, I think the people that perform well in some departments are despite the environment, not because of the environment. Sure. No, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, you got to give people the right tools, the right training and hold them to the right standard. I mean, with the, we have a lot of responsibility, right? And, and so cool. Uh, but you need to be, we just need to hold ourselves to the highest standard. You need to ethically and morally be, beyond reproach as best you can. I mean, we all have warts and, you know, things we screw up, but own it and move on and learn from it and don't do it again. Um, because it is important. I mean, all the the drama of the last couple of years, you know, with particularly law enforcement, uh, you know, those are, if, I love to see the forensics on all of it, you know, like where in the training pipeline were things flawed that allowed this behavior, where in the, you know, your kind of standards, your ethos did that, or, you know, or do you even have one, you know, where, where did you, where were they allowed to slip on this when it should be something that's character should be non-negotiable? Uh, where, where were those points of failure within it? Okay. Instead of maybe 
you know, instead of defunding the police, how about, you know, you give them the tools and the training to, uh, and, and make them hold the higher standard, you know, and move and think about how much better off we'd be then, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think another side of the coin that's not really discussed is why are our streets so damn dangerous in the first place? You can walk down a street in Norway and not get murdered by a gang member. You know, what's yeah. different here? And you look at things like drug prohibition, which we'll, we'll get into in a little bit anyway, but I think that's what's not discussed. You know, reverse engineer to the root of the problem. Uh, I mean, and there's a bunch of root causes, you know, I mean, economics, education, opportunity. Uh, certainly, I mean, racism, you know, I, I, you know, if I look back to the, when I was a kid in the early, you know, se- late 70s, early 80s, I mean, I, th- I think America is a much less racist country now than 30 years ago you know uh so we can't quit blame everything on that where, where are the economic opportunities that we're falling short on where are we you know i mean it's such a, a mat there's so many pieces to that puzzle but they're out there they're not complicated you know just you gotta identify them and, and quit picking one boogeyman and get to and i love doing the root cause analysis what is the root cause and let's figure it out and then fix it instead of you know throwing happy you know, happy to glad changes or, you know, slogans out there really dive into it, get the root cause, you know, and it's, and it goes deeper than, you know, racism. It's economic disparity. It's education level. It's opportunities for jobs. I mean, it's, you know, when I was a kid, man, like Milwaukee was a a manufacturing Mecca, you know, and there was a shit ton of great paying blue collar jobs where guys can make a good living for their families and they, they could enjoy life. And then we shipped them all over to you know China because we like cheap shit. And uh and I, that's okay, that has a that has a deleterious impact, right? I mean that all of a sudden you see, you know, neighborhoods become rougher and rougher because there's there is no hope. There's no good job. There's no whatever else uh, available for them. And you know, so it's we just we just look at we don't want to scratch the surface and dive down deep and figure out what the hell the problems are and it's I mean that's with everything we got we got too short of attention spans uh, it's too much work to do it so we'll just you know make us feel good about ourselves by making passing this law or that law and instead of really diving into the problem and fixing it to its core yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll fly an American flag or take a knee or whatever gesture it doesn't fix the problem in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah, not at all. All right. So then I want to get back to Johnny, but just so we can set up the need, tell me through, you know, a deployed SEAL's eyes what you were seeing as far as communication challenges. And what's interesting, obviously, as we read Johnny's book, it's not so much even the language. It's obviously a cultural understanding. So what were you seeing prior to, to Johnny joining the team? Well, with the interpreters we had, uh, almost all of them were expats, right? So they had emigrated uh, out of Iraq. Uh, we had, and then they all had really great stories. I mean, like, you know, I used to, they all lived in my room. So, cause their, their housing sucked. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the Kurdish guy who fled Iraq after his village got gassed, uh, a Shia guy who fled Iraq after, you know, his village was massacred after, uh, the first Gulf war, uh, part of the uprising, uh, Christian guy who had to, uh, 
you know, babysit Ude and Kuse when he was a kid and he fled. And then, uh, you know, Lebanese guys who had, you know, Christians who had fought uh, in the 70s in Beirut. Uh, this whole group, fantastic individuals, fantastic stories. I love them all. But they were U.S. citizens. They had fled and became U.S. citizens. And they had, uh, so they were going to, like us, they were deployed, do their job, make their money, which they got paid ridiculously well and uh come back home they didn't have to deal with the aftermath where johnny and, and so they have a different perspective right they're uh they can almost fuel uh the anger with a bunch of young frogmen kicking in a door right because they're pissed off because they fled the you know their con this country they fl or they fled the iraq for a reason and you know and and it 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 exacerbated uh, some of those religious and dividing lines within the country. So the Kurds would be pissed at a Sunni. Uh, the Shia were pissed at the, you know, Sunnis or, or the Kurds for whatever reason. And so the, these deep seated cultural, uh, I guess not hatred, but dislikes uh, would come, could come out uh, while we we're doing our jobs. Whereas with Johnny, uh, because he had to live with the aftermath uh, of whatever mess we made or whatever, whatever good we did. Uh, he had a, a different outlook and that's what helped kind of change. Uh, I think a lot of NSW, the SEALs in Iraq perspective, right? So you go to a target uh, looking for an Al Qaeda guy. Cool. You know, you blow the door in and 20 seconds later, the, target secure and you have the military age men on one side and or one room and women and kids and elderly in another. And, and you know, Johnny would walk by the, it, it always tripped me out how he knew, but he'd like walk by all the men and go, ah, that's the guy, you know, he'd, find, he'd ask him like, how the hell do you know, dude? Uh, but you know, we'd ask a few questions and yes, yeah, so that'd be the guy. But then watching Johnny go to the women and kids and the elderly and, you know, he'd give the women money, you know, to help pay for whatever food or the, the front door that looks like toothpicks or, uh, you know, give the kids some chem lights, glow sticks, or, a, you know, stuffed animal or a toy or candy. And it, nobody else did that. Right. They, the, the other guys didn't, not that they're callous, but it was, it just wasn't in their mindset. Whereas Johnny was like, Hey, look, man, these are my people. This guy happens to be a turd, but you know, this, I don't want this kid growing up to be a terrorist. So I'm going to put a good impression you know, for America and for Iraq and what we're trying to do here. And, uh, that was, that was really a, a, a big change. I mean, it just, it, it was a, a very subtle lead by example thing that Johnny did. Uh, but it, I could, I watched it evolve over like the seven month deployment. Like initially we're all like, ah, let's fuck them all. And then, you know, with Johnny night after night on these targets, oh shit, man, you know, like, this is the right way. This is how you, this is how you win a counterinsurgency. You know, you're, a, you crush bad guys and you protect the innocent. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a light bulb moment, I think for all of us, uh, whether we realized it or not, but his example definitely carried over, you know, so it's huge. Brilliant. Well, Johnny, over to you then. So, um, if you want to walk me through, I know you started working with the military priests initially, but walk me through kind of your your journey into the SEAL teams and then, you know, through your perspective, how you weren't just working with the SEAL teams, but ultimately 
wore a trident because you were accepted that deeply? Again, everything in my life is fucking weird. So worked with military police, did a lot of crazy things. And starting building my name, not my attention to build my name, but my attention to have more fun and make the military police uh, depend on me in most of the time. As you guys tell, troubled kid, play basketball, but, but I'm still going to some bars and fucking fight, do all this kind of... So basically I am at the dark level, so I know where's the thieves, where's the fucking fraud, so when I work with the military police and we run the police station, I know where we're going to find bad guys. And that time there's no insurgent, there's no anti-attack because they are my people, my friends. I hang out with them, drink with them, and I know all the fucking, if I can call it the mafia. So we had a lot of fun. Anyway, Sergeant East, he recommended my name to, to the teams and I still remember he came to me and he said, Johnny, I think you will have good unit to work with. It's like, man, I don't want to move. I, I don't like change. Like in my house, I, I rather to stay the couch in the same spot for 30 years. My wife, every five days, she changed it. <laughs> I have the worst PTSD ever from PSD because of my wife. So anyway, so, okay, sound good. He said, Johnny. They couldn't pay you 500 and that time they paid me 200 So I was like, you know what? I love Uncle Sam money. So anyway, I remember JT Freeze. I had a meeting with him, interview. We sit in the truck, Tacoma pickup, and he started talking with me. And he, you know the deal. I have no language at that time. I just waved my head. It looked like I know. I know. I have no idea what he said. And at the end, it looked like I want to stop embarrassing myself. So I told him, did I get the job? He says, indeed. Um, okay, thank you so much. So I went back to the military uh, police unit facility, and all of them, they wait, stand by. Hey, Johnny, did you get the job? I told him, indeed. And I have no idea what does indeed mean. All of them, they say, fuck yeah. It's like awesome, 500 in my pocket. So anyway, start moving to the with the SEALs. First mission, I went to the brief, like fucking 60 minutes. And you have to remember, James, this is like a new culture in my life, new, new things in my life. Like right now, if you go in anywhere, you check it in YouTube and Google, this and that. In that time, nothing, like between dark and white, white and dark, whatever you call it. I just came to this community. I just came to those people with no idea. And I have to explore it by myself with no language. I don't have that language. Like from the whole briefing, 60 minutes, I understand only the jackpot name, Abdullah. And not because of anything, just because his Arabic, Abdullah. His name in Arabic, Abdullah. So anyway, we went to the target. The guy is calling me, and they asked me, not they asked me, they says, you have to have body armor and helmet. It's like, no, I don't want it. 
No, you have to. So we have a little bit of argument, but it's like, you know what? I don't want to lose the 500. So we went to the target, and the guys called me, stop, move left and right, body language more than talking. And I just hear bomb. Big fucking bomb. Big explosive. So it was like, fuck me. Time to run again. So I started running, and the guy who was calling me run behind me, and he started calling me, hey, stop, nothing, blah, blah, blah. So I stopped. And they told him, you hear the explosive? He says, yeah, we tried to open the door. I was like, fuck. The name is Seal. I found it in dictionary is Sea Animal. And the way how they open the door, they have to put explosive. And I'm thinking like, okay, I can go by myself, fucking beat the shit out of the everyone in that house and find the target and bring him back. Why they do... So this kind of struggling. Nothing serious changed my view until one time we had the target and we found the warehouse. Huge, brother. This is 2004 or beginning of 2005. It's huge. RBG, explosive, C4, um, round 150 millimeters, name it. When I look at it, it's like, fuck. I feel kind of disappointed because I think about myself. I am the one who knows everything, especially in my city. American, they don't know. And kind of feel shame and challenge at the same time. And this is kind of give me motivation to be the best and find way to be for real part of the team. And when I look at to them, they have the best training. I, sh I saw them. No one tell me about them, how they conduct mission. Within five, 10 minutes, they clear all the house and everyone know his job. And there is no very harmful, very honest between them because I live with them. They give me trailer. And funny, funny days, I have to jump back to that story. First day when I give me the trailer, they, uh, they let one of the team guys live next door, not with me in the trailer, no, next door in his trailer. So every time when I go to the bathroom and I'm drinking, I have to knock his door and go to the bathroom. So it's like, okay, motherfuckers, you guys want to play game? I'll play game. So every 10 minutes, hey, I have daddy, I have to go to the bathroom. After five, six times, he says, you know what? Just fucking do whatever. So anyway, start all this kind of things. And the, between me and myself, okay, so how I can improve myself, how I can reach to the level that we can catch more bad guys. We can fucking clean my city from this disease. I know it. I'm not pretend I'm smart, but in that particular action, I have a smart vision. That's those people, they will never build our country. They will never build my city that time. So how I can develop myself to be in the same level of those people. Training skill, 
uh, no matter how much I'm going to train, I'm not going to be like them. So what else? What are they missing? So I look at to the bad guys. I look at to my team, my brothers. So the bad guys, they have language. They have culture. And they have the ground. My team, they have, and religion. Religious. My team have no religious. What I mean by religious, like, Bad guys, they can use religious as weapon against my brother. Like all those Christians, they came to destroy Islam. Team, they cannot use religious. So one of the minus weapon in the hand. The ground, they control the ground because they are from the people, from the Iraqi people, from Mosul, and they are among them. My team, they stay in the pace. And the language and culture. So how I can build that bridge. And this is where I start educate myself and my team and starting building that bridge between us, me and my brothers, and the innocent people. I care less about bad guy if I killed him or anyone killed him. Not because I'm savage or anything. I mean, if bad guys call me savage, I don't give a shit. But because I know those people, if we let them live, look at Iraq, what happened now. So this is where we became more effective. When I look at to the team, the SEALs, I knew they are a professional warrior, but there is something missing. And this is where I come, and we start complete each other and we start running by one unit and I remember like Taco he's funny motherfucker you should have him in there yeah, he's been fucking... on Dan Cerullo he's oh. been on yep he, oh, okay. he's actually yeah. one of the people that connected us I believe oh okay so Taco he's the you know the first one I worked with and he's the first one who's giving me a pistol he says you know what you have the right to protect yourself so anyway, long story short, we start completing each other. We start working as one team, and that's why we start winning the war not by killing or catch. And this is a new things in modern warfare by start building the foundation, especially with the sniper mission. You know, our uh, DA is take no more than 20, 30 minutes in the target, but the, about sniper mission OP, we stay a couple of days, three days, and this is where it gives us enough time, me and the team, not to prove to the family, but just to show them we are human. And each one of them, like Johnny Heil, Tommy, God bless him, uh, the other guys, each one of them, he have a story and he have family behind him. And when he came here, he had no hard feeling against anyone. He just tried to do the right things for you guys and for himself. And we established that relationship and we succeed so far with that. See, that's so so powerful to hear because it wasn't like, you know, you, you took your ninja skills and your 50 cal and went through Mosul mowing people down. It was communication. 
it was compassion and kindness along with, you know, the, the kind of walk softly but carry a big stick approach. You had violence when you needed it, and then you had compassion and kindness when you needed it. James, weapon tools is not the goal. Like, look at the history. British take over India. I don't know, maybe 100,000 soldiers. And the Indian is billion. They are not took it with weapon. They took it with guerrilla style. They took it with a lot of things. You know what I mean? So I'm not comparing that, but I'm just comparing about how much the weapon is silly sometimes. Like look at you before 9-11. Look at to all the world. Look at United States. I mean, until we we went to Afghanistan and Iraq, look at to all the world. They consider United States as land of freedom. This is not came by the 50 cal. This is not came by F-35. This is not came by Tomahawk. This is not came by... This came from fucking John Wayne. This is came from uh, Toby Keith. This is came from uh, sexy blonde chick. You, you know what I mean? This is came from Heartland Team. This is came from the way of living. This is came from all this kind of things. So basically, you find America in every house who believe that tomorrow is going to be better in all the world, China, Middle East, Christian, Buddha, Muslim, no matter what. In 2000, after Afghanistan and Iraq, the, the picture start change when we use the weapon. And this is where it gives me the, the idea that the weapon is not everything. And when we work training the ICT of the Iraqi Special Forces, uh, Steve Wozowski, I can't mention his name. I told him, brother, we're lo losing the war against <clears throat> insurgent. We have to have Iraqi hero. We have to build Iraqi person who is everyone talk with him. So he's going to be the lead of the victory and the faith to the people who have no faith. Because if you look at the strategy of the Mujahideen, Qaeda, ISS, all the extremist religion is building organized chaos so they can control through it. So I think this kind of challenge, and I accept it when I enjoyed the team, to fill that gap. And we talk, we keep talking. I wish in the future we can establish culture and, and on the team training so the guys when he go he is not a professional with weapons most of them they are smart more than me especially the new the new generation they are smart motherfucker with technology everything but if we add the culture this is going to be the perfect warrior beautiful well jason i want to get your take on that but just just to interject i think that's one thing we see with law enforcement too. There is a necessity for the level of tactical gear that these men and women wear at the moment. But there's undoubtedly also a kind of hostility and disconnect created when you cover your 
you know, law enforcement with, with head to toe with protective gear, whether it's riot gear, whether it's, you know, SWAT gear. And, you know, I see that is a barrier, but, you know, it's again, that vicious circle that we, as we mentioned before, we got to kind of undo. But yeah, I mean, if you're walking around in, in a, an aggressive stance, it's much harder to deescalate and, and, you know, use good, effective communication because you're already at that level. So Jason, with you, I want to walk through obviously the, the transition into getting Johnny to, to the US, which I think is a very powerful part of the story. And there's so much in the book, obviously in between that people can read. But, um, if you want to just pull like one example of where that philosophy that Johnny talked about works so well, you know, when, when you were out there and then kind of walk us through the, the genesis of actually getting him to the US. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that cultural piece that Johnny brings up is so critical. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, one of the foundations, in my opinion, of having a successful counterinsurgency, right? So, you, you know, the, the old way was we're going to be on these big bases. We're going to cruise out at night, blow in front doors, get the bad guy and come back and high five and whatever else. Uh, as like the surge and all that shifted, uh, you know, it realized that you need to be among the local people. And uh, it's, a, it's a sales competition, man. It's a marketing proposition. You have two competing brands. One, one's Al-Qaeda and one is the Iraqi government with, supported by the U.S. And at, you know, up until you know, early 2007, uh, the Al-Qaeda brand was uh, getting more sales traction because they, the people didn't really like it, but it was the lesser of two evils, right? The Americans, you know, cruise in there, boom, do all their stuff. Then they come back. They're not living with the aftermath or Al Qaeda. Uh, we might not like them, but they're here among us in the population. And, you know, as soon as the Americans leave, they're going to come out and kill us. So we just, it's safer bet to side with them. And, but uh, like just on target, like Johnny, I mean, almost every night there's some cultural thing. One I remember particularly was uh, we were working with uh, uh, an, another unit uh, with a uh, Iraqi we had an Iraqi team with them and uh, they, they would always say it was Al Qaeda, you know, like so they could get our assets and, and use it. And so we're hitting this Al Qaeda target, uh, you know, and, and I'd be usually in the back of the stack going into the house with Johnny next to me and uh, blowing the door, clear the target, you know, and Johnny just puts his arm around me. And he's like, yeah, see that poster over there? This house is Shia, man. These guys are not bad. You know, it turned out it was some, political vendetta that the uh, other unit had with this particular uh, individual. And, and it was, that was kind of a, that was somewhat of an aha moment because he's pointing out these little cultural nuances that identified this house as Shia that was completely lost to probably the majority of us in the, in the uh, chaos of the situation. And, you know, it's like, okay, shit, you know, this is, we just made more enemies, man. Like this is not doing any good it might make this you know iraqi unit feel better because they they're gonna go do whatever with this guy but you know we just it was an american face to it and we looked like a bunch of you know fedine coming in the middle of the night and taking somebody out and uh you know that caused us to really start vetting stuff and and being more attuned to it like johnny's point uh you know if, if you can get up if you're gonna go deploy to the philippines you know Hey, get a, a crash course in the cultural nuances of, you know, the Southern archipelago and the Manila area and whatever else. Or if you're going to the Middle East, get a crash course on, the, you know, the cultural uh, nuances between 
Kuwait and Bahrain and UAE or and the different uh, demographics there. And it, it really, so you understand it when you get there and you can, you know, have some emotional and cultural intelligence. I mean, that's important, just as important as the guns you have. And so it, you know, like Johnny, I, I, I met Johnny in April, 2005. Uh, we was, uh, I was turning over with the, uh, the task unit uh, senior enlisted uh, who I was relieving. And you know, one of the things he said was, Hey, trust Johnny. The guy's, the guy's good to go. And, uh, you know, my initial thought was like, shit, this guy's a Sunni from Iraq, from Mosul. I'm like, okay. And, uh, you know, just a stereotype, you know, uh, that unfortunately is inherent in most people. And it quickly, I quickly realized I was stupid, like from examples like that on those targets. And, and so Johnny and I were connected at the hip for the bulk of this deployment. And as it, a couple months in, I realized like, damn man, like, what, uh, what's going to happen if we leave here, you know? And so, uh, one of the, uh, we had some NCIS guys we worked with, their interpreter was life was threatened. Uh, his house was trashed and they got him out of the country, uh, pretty quickly to, uh, like Egypt or somewhere. And so I was, I hit Johnny up one day about halfway through our deployment. I'm like, Hey dude, uh, you ever thought about coming to the States? And uh, he, he looked at me, he was totally offended by the question. He's like, bro, this is my country. You know, we're going to see this thing through. And Johnny, you know, understands history. You know, what happened after, you know, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and we went to war with Japan or, and Germany. I mean, the Marshall Plan and we, you know, Germany's econ- economy quickly became robust. Japan's economy surpassed ours at one point, I think. And, and so Johnny's like, hey, if we stick this out and we win, the Americans will rebuild Iraq and it's going to be, you know, a, a republic, you know, democratic republic in the middle, in the heart of the Middle East. You know, I mean, the, the start of civilization. And and I admired that, you know, but OK, cool. Uh, appreciate that. I wish we had more Johnnies. And then we continued the deployment and it kept going on and on. And finally, uh, October, end of October 2005, it was time for uh us to redeploy and the, the t- team that uh, was coming in to relieve us was up and running. We got them all squared away and, and it was time for us to go. So I'm standing on the tarmac at uh, Biop, uh, Baghdad International Airport. And I got the C-17 behind us. It's loaded up with the shipping containers and, and uh, you know, parts of my team. And I'm looking at Johnny, which I really, I, I, I'm looking at him, which I, I know I'm convinced it's the last time I'm ever, ever going to see him again. And I'm convinced, uh, or I'm semi-convinced he's not going to survive or his family's not going to survive. Uh, cause it, it, it just, it, the odds were just not in his favor. So I hit him up again. I'm like, Hey man, you know, if you ever change your mind, let me know. And, uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, brother. You know? And, uh, with that, I said goodbye, gave him, you know, one last bro hug and, uh, we took off and headed back to, uh, the States and left Johnny with the, the team that relieved us. And, cool you know about three months later i'm um, back home swing of things and everything else and one night in mid january i'm sitting in my kitchen standing in my kitchen and uh the phone rings and i, I look down at the phone and i recognize it as uh one of our voiceover internet protocol lines uh from iraq and my heart starts racing you know because the only reason i'm getting a phone call at home 
uh, you know, my personal line from Iraq is because uh, something bad happened. So um, this is going through my head as I'm making a beeline out the front door uh, to get out of the house. My, I don't want my wife and kids to see me uh, have an emotional reaction when I get the bad news. And, and so I get outside the front yard, I answer the phone, and it's the commanding officer of the SEAL team that relieved us, uh, Wiz. And he's like, hey, Touche, it's Wiz. And I, and I just like my heart sinks because I've been, you know, command master chief for a decade. And and uh, and the commanding officer or the command master chief are the ones who deliver the bad news, you know, and, uh, and I've had to do it and it sucks. And so as soon as he answered the phone, uh, I knew it was him. I knew it was bad. And, but it wasn't, thank God. He, he hits me up and he goes, Hey man, I got Johnny here uh, next to me in the office. Uh, he said, you know, you, you talked about trying to get him out. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's, uh, he's like, cool. We got to do it. Things have gotten too bad for Johnny and his family. Uh, can you work on getting him and the family out? I'm like, yeah, fucking hey, man, for sure. And, uh, hung up the phone and then I, I was like completely dumbstruck. I'm like, holy shit, like, I don't even know where to begin with this one and how to start. And so, uh, yeah, that, it, that January of 2006 started this uh, ridiculous process of uh, trying to get Johnny out. But it was, uh, I guess it, you know, like about a month later, I, I gathered, you know, some people were helping me. I had some paperwork and documents that instructions um, pertaining to special immigrant visas. Uh, that the House of Representatives had passed some HR resolution to whatever. And, uh, but, uh, you know, about a month after that phone call, I, I found an immigration attorney who worked at the main Navy base in San Diego, came in every Thursday and listened to people uh, with their immigration issues. And uh, so, I, you know, I got a haircut and put a uniform on, and uh, which we hate doing. And I uh, headed, headed over there with what little documentation I had. And I got an audience with uh, George Sabga. The, he was the lawyer, fucking fantastic human being. And I just started telling the story like, look, man, this guy's life's in danger. He's been working with us night after night. He's, you know, he, he's proven himself, his loyalty to the country and, and the teams in, in Iraq a thousand times over. Uh, but his life's in really bad danger. And George was, he was all fired up on it. He loved it. He took the case on pro bono. And so I was, okay, February, 2006, uh, I was like, cool, man. I got a lawyer on this thing. This guy's a baller, uh, six months, Johnny's going to be home or here in the States. And, uh, we're going to be kicking it and having a good time. And I get to meet his family and, uh, totally not the case. It's not how the bureaucracy played out in this case. It was, uh, an agonizingly long and just, just stupid process, quite frankly, you know, that, it took, uh, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. It was three and a half years of, uh, filling out paperwork, sending it up, not hearing anything for months, weeks or months on end. Uh, the Homeland security or state department would fire back, uh, at that point going, Hey, you didn't dot these I's you didn't cross these T's. Uh, you know, you need to resubmit this. I had to like scan shit in email it over to Iraq where Johnny and whatever SEAL team happened to be there at the time. Uh, they would take it, refill it out. We'd review it, send it back in. Uh, it, 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 you know, to complicate matters, uh, you know, Riyadh, you can spell that a dozen different ways. You can spell Johnny's, you know, tribe name 
a dozen different ways. So we misspelled it constantly, or we changed the spelling, not thinking, you know, phonetically spelling it. Uh, I still so, have one of the, I still have one of the letters in my name. My grandfather's <laughs> name is wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Like it, it changed every time. You didn't know your damn birthday at one point. You know, we were like, we knew it was 1964 in December. So we're like, oh Christ, well, just pick a day, man. So we don't, you know, put the wrong one on. And so it was those kind of things happening uh, as well. And it, it really took uh, like key leaders in some uh, critical spots in DC. We, you know, uh, like Wiz was working, uh, I remember National Security Council, whatnot, but he could get an ear for, you know, like uh, key leaders in the administration. We, we always put, uh, we always have some mid-level officers in uh, like the House Arms, House Armed Services Committee staff or the, the SAS, the Senate Armed Services Committee staff. And they enlisted the aid uh, of some pretty high ranking congressional staffers. And then like every single SEAL and support person who deployed to Iraq, which was, you know, from 2004 to 2009 was, you know, had had their hands in this in some way, shape or form. And that's a lot of people to try to get six people out of a country uh, whose lives are in danger, who absolutely earned the right to come here. And uh, that, so that process just was, it was agonizingly slow. It was arguably the most stressful period of my life because, you know, while we're dealing with the bureaucracy and all this paperwork and crap, Johnny's out every single night with the, with the, whatever SEAL teams over there kicking in doors and, and, and getting after it. And, uh, you just feel like, okay, Johnny's on like a perpetual, like a six year long deployment going out night after night after night in some pretty heavy combat. At some point, man, like the odds are going to run out and he's going to get, you know, take a bullet and, uh, you know, there's divine intervention or what, I don't know, but that never happened. And, uh, we were able to get this thing almost to, or get it, uh, completed just took, you know, three and a half years, but it was, it was, it was, like I said, it was terrifying. I, every day I logged into my computer, I expected to get a, a message saying, uh, yeah, Hey, thanks for your hard work, man. But, uh, Johnny was killed last night or his family was murdered because they're in hiding, you know, and, and Johnny's going out every, night after night. And, you know, the uh, president Obama, when he was elected, you know, one of his campaign platforms was pulling out of Iraq. And so there was a sense of urgency on our part too, to get this done. Cause what's going to happen when, if we pull out of Iraq, you know, like we're doing right now in Afghanistan, all, all the workers, all the interpreters, everybody's just going to get slaughtered. And, uh, that, that guilt would have been unbearable for me. So we, we actually concocted a plan to, uh, smuggle Johnny and his family out of the country. You know, we're going to sneak him in, uh, you know, when the last U.S. or last plane with the SEALs was leaving, we would have figured out a way to put his family in a shipping container, you know, give him some food, cut some ventilation holes, give him a bucket, bucket to poop in and smuggle him in the country. And just, you know, it's better to beg for forgiveness and ask permission because the uh, the guilt of uh, Johnny dying or his family dying or us failing would have been uh, way more. I mean, that. I'd rather go to jail than have to live with that guilt for the rest of my life. And I think everybody, uh, you know, felt that way as well. And we're like, yeah, okay, man, or fly to Mexico and sneak across the border. Cause they don't really, you know, you can get across that real easy, you know, but if you want to come from Iraq after serving alongside with us for 
six fucking years. You, you got to go through this ridiculous process. Uh, so there was, there was that kind of anger. And I know it's deeper than that. I mean, there's, I get it, but you know, from a perception point of view, it's like we allow people all the time to come through and we're not letting this guy and every other interpreter who worked with us in here immediately is, is you know, it was pretty fucked up. And, uh, but thank God, uh, we never had to pull that, uh, plan off, you know, cause we got like literally, so this process started January, 2006, June, 2009, uh, right. As we had this whole plan concocted, the lawyer calls up and says, Hey man, good news. You know, it's been approved. And I'm like, Holy shit. Uh, and then, uh, yeah. So that, then, then the whole thing started moving pretty quickly. Johnny, uh, I sent an email giving the guys over in Iraq the good news. Like, hey, man, you know, it's it's approved. They should be getting, you know, you'll get plane tickets soon and all this and get the family out of there. And then I just hit all caps on the uh, computer. I'm like, don't let this dude, don't let Johnny talk you <laughs> into going on any more missions. <laughs> You're locking this guy down. And you destroyed me with that, Caps. They don't <laughs> let me. I start kissing people ass. No way, One man. last mission. No, you have to stay. No. That last one was your last one, buddy. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause the last thing you want to do is like, cool, man. You know, they're coming to the States and then, you know, some just happenstance, you know, just all the weird shit that happens in war, man, like a bullet or ID, who knows what uh, kills them right. Like right next to the finish line. So uh, that didn't happen. And then, uh, yeah, the, the plane tickets came in and uh, it's like July, 2009 and, Johnny and his family were the w- most well-guarded human beings ever to board an aircraft in the history of mankind. <laughs> that's what that's what happened next. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, obviously, you, know, you can tell from the accent, I'm an immigrant myself. I definitely didn't have to go through quite the rigor mole that, that you did. But again, I, I encountered a lot of red tape. Even when I was serving as a firefighter, I had an incident at the DMV where I'm pretty sure I was surrounded by a lot of people that maybe hadn't come the the natural way. And with my fire and everything, was still told I couldn't renew my driving license. I had to go to you know immigration, and I mean it was it was a nightmare. So I got a little little you know look into that. So Johnny, from you coming from Iraq, coming getting to that point where you had all these optimistic hopes for your country, but it wasn't manifesting in democracy and you know the destruction of the insurgency. Talk to me about coming to america because i believe in the american dream i love england you know like i've n- nothing negative about my country at all apart from the weather's a bit shit um but uh you know but if, for me you only get one life so this was another beautiful chapter that i was able to come and, and i was able to be a firefighter and, and a paramedic which you can't do simultaneously back home um but you know the, the american dream is the freedom the ability to do what you want and you know a, a humble house with with some land and you know raising your kids uh, when I got here, it was Winnebago's and jet skis, but that was uh, right before the economic collapse. <laughs> so, talk to me about you know that that childhood dream that you had that actually manifesting after three and a half years of missions where you could have taken a bullet and that would have been the end of it, and your family would have been incredibly vulnerable then. So, before I go back to that story, I if you allow me, I want to mention something. Do you remember the seal? When I put it from big ass dictionary is animal C. Yes. And when they reach the door, and this is the way how we open the door. And the third story is about the culture too. 
like I told you, everything's fucking weird. So one time we had big ass mission in Fallujah. And you know Fallujah, you know Fallujah, James? Um, I'm familiar with it because I think a lot of the British were, were yeah. there, weren't they? Yeah. So it's not fun. If you go to mission in Fallujah on the chaos, you will be so lucky to go back with missing one arm or one leg. And you will be, you will have a party. So anyway, we're preparing for the mission and, you know, the manifest. And they put me the last, last fucking Humvees. And I never sit inside the Humvees. And my ideology in that, if I'm going to die, I want to take someone with me to be my fucking partner in the hell, paradise, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, I'm sitting at the back. And I'm just thinking, it's like, those motherfuckers, they put me at the last MV, easy target. Fuck them. I'm with myself complaining because I have to make my brain busy with something. So best thing is to start complaining like fucking bitch. So while I'm having that shit in my brain, I saw a tuition coming. What the fuck? What are you doing? And Tush, you know, we read the manifest. He's at the first MVs at the front seat. So pretty much he's fucking safe. What are you doing? He said, ah, fuck it. I'm going to come with you. I don't know. I mean, he can't tell his part. But it's like, okay, that's cool. Shit, that's cool. And he sits next to me and he starts acting weird. We have the black shield. He starts covering himself. It's like, what are you doing? He says, just in case if we have idea or something. I want to be in one piece. It's like, okay, shit. For me, if there's fucking idea, if they found my finger or my leg or my toe, I care less. After like five minutes, more weird. What's up to? She says, you don't know. You don't understand. It's like, tell me. He says, man, just tell me like, you, have, you do your things, you know, your best you can to make me save this and that. And I know, too, she's fucking badass. He never asked me. He never asked anyone. You know what I mean? It's like, what brother? What are you talking about? He says, no, no, you don't understand. It's like, this is fucking racist because I'm fucking Iraqi or something. I don't understand you. What the fuck? What's, what's going on? He says, Mary Jo. Mary Jo, his wife's name. If something happened, she says, if something happened to you, I will kick your ass. Yeah, yeah. That's we go right. into Fallujah. <laughs> and he's not worried about Mujahideen, bad guys, ID, everything. <laughs> he just worried about Mary Jo. His wife kicking and his ass. I yeah. try to be logic. I try to be no logic with wisdom that. in it. And nothing match. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> <that was> pretty close. <laughs> The, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, if you're a leader, you got to lead by example. And so if I'm going to put, you know, and, and there was one other guy back there too, I think it was, uh, that young EOD kid, you know, if you're going to lead, if, if you're going to ask people to sit in the last fucking Humvee with no armor, uh, you better be able to do it yourself too. And so I kind of felt that way. Like, okay, that we're going down route Michigan. This is the worst stretch of road in the history of humanity. Uh, you know. And I got these, I got these two guys in the in the back. That's bullshit. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go sit back there with them, and their fate will be my fate. 
uh, yeah, th- we put the ballistic blanket over ourselves, just to keep the body parts intact. If uh, we, we did get hit, but yeah, I told Johnny like, yeah, it basically along that line, I'm like, eh, you know, I go, I go, I'm more scared of, uh, pissing my wife off than getting killed by Al Qaeda. Cause yeah, her parting shot to me was if you get killed, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> Something to that effect. And so, uh, I was like, yeah, we're good, man. We'll be, we'll be safe. <laughs> but you know, it's just, uh, I think that's when, uh, also a moment where Johnny and I became, uh, even closer friends, you know, it's like, well, you know, it's like, okay, I don't, I don't dig on if you're somebody's a part of the team, everybody's a part of the team, man. You know, and I don't care how junior you are or what your pedigree is or whatever the fuck else. It's, uh, you know, we're all in it together when you're part of a team. So it was, uh, yeah, but that, that, that was, a, that was, a, uh, heart rate was up a bit on that drive though. I think <laughs> till we got that mission done. Cause, uh, it's not a, that's not a fun place to sit on route Michigan at all. But yeah. Thank you for the sharing that story. Um, so Johnny, again, back to you. Um, oh, I mean, let me tag two things on. I want to make sure we get to it. Talk to me about that experience of finally coming to America, but then I'm on it. Let's I'm talk about mental health as well, yeah. because I think that's you know an important thing. I want to make sure that we do discuss before we we run out of time. Yeah. So, so walk me through that whole experience through your eyes. So, came to United States is is you know it's part of the dream, but I'm, I just want to respond to Tushin. He says we are the less Racist country. No, this is country racist, and I'm going to give you proof. So, all the team guys, they work. There is Christian, Muslim, black, white, yellow, all of them. I think Tushin here, forget to mention that. I have to remind my brother about it. All those community. CBs, admins, SEALs, officers, enlist, all of them, they work for Muslim family. Some of them, they never met us. Some of them, he don't neck his neighbor door, ask him what you want. He's fucking care about someone thousand and thousand miles. So imagine how much American community races. And this is one evidence. Second, when we came here, Johnny Heil, wife Susie, she took my wife to Casco. Until now, I can show you my house. There are some stuff we don't know what the fuck we're doing with it. This family bought it from us, bought it for us from Casco. Second witness, how much they are racist. Third, JT, he, he, bring, he brought me a car, Hyundai 1991 from all the way Washington to San Diego. And he paid the registration, he paid the maintenance, he paid everything. Third, right? Fourth, Tushin, I call him sometime, hey, can you pay? We have some pills. What is it, Johnny? I watch a lot of movies in Cox, some movies, and Tushin, fuck, man. I never watched this bunch of shit. What the <laughs> fuck? Chris Good, he came to my house, and he is so shy, embarrassing, to give my wife a gift and name it. 
thousand and thousand and thousand things. So yeah, American people they are racist more than anyone in the world. <laughs> that's that's the proof. So a little bit of sarcasm there. Yes, it's sad. <laughs> just to just to clarify. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And sadly, you know, what we're seeing are the the racist people of the world are given all the the television time and the social media time. And I agree 100%. The middle, I think the middle 80, 90% of this country, of most countries are looking left and right and going, what the fuck are you all talking about? But they don't get represented. Bro, shut down, shut down, shut down CNN and shut down Jazeera and you will, you will have no racism in the world. Well, Fox too, let's throw them in. Like they're all the Fox, same damn companies with different, different color ties. So anyway, I respect any opinion, but, Social media, that's why media, CNN, whatever. I mean, I have personal experience with them. But anyway, in the same racist section, people, they call the American racist because of Trump, he troubled ban, all this kind of thing. But look at the Arabic country, next to Syria, next to Iraq, they don't accept refugee. And they are Muslim country, and they don't need to travel or smuggle thousands and thousands miles or three, four country. And this is what happened in Turkey and in Europe. And they call the United States racist. So is monopolate meaning, monopolate topics. Uh, I care less about it. Third thing, I just want to mention something before we go to the American dream, the life, and the PTSD and drug, all these kind of things. Flag, American flag. To all the people, don't fucking tell me about your problem with the flag because I respect it, but I don't give a shit. Because the way how I carry the flag is different than your fucking story. I respect your opinion, but you have to listen to my fucking shit. When I work with Americans, there is a black, there is white, there is Asian. All of them, they have fucking American flag on the shoulder. None of them from my individual observation, no one tell me about that. None of them, he thinks he's going to take off the American flag and throw it away. And I saw people, they fucking sacrifice. I saw people, they fucking take risk just to raise the flag. So don't tell me your fucking bullshit about the American flag. I didn't came from hundreds and hundreds years of slavery. I came from five years of glory by killing the American flag. So anyway, I came to the United States. The first thing my wife asked me, can I take off the hijab? I told her, it's yours. So this is small freedom. Maybe a lot of people, they don't feel it because they are not under the pressure. Second thing, now she is in the university and she's smarter than me. And she, thank God, she's not here. She will correct all my grammar. and But every time I use F word, I can't see her from the door. So anyway, <laughs> and she have her own car. She driving the highway. She have a group of friends. She can go anywhere. She can travel in the United States. She went by herself to Middle East. So if she's still in Iraq, she can do that? No. So everyone in my family... He is enjoying and respect American dream. Everyone in different level. I have a grandchild now, Lilia. We call her the American dream. 
And it looked like, look, from thousand years, from million people, I am the only one who's came to this country, immigrant, and I have the third generation born and raised in this country. If I ask myself, my journey is worth it by the result? Yes, it's worth it. By sacrifice, I accept the sacrifice I did. I lost my brother. I get injured, broken teeth. This is fucking fake. Well, I'm going to have almost like uh, real ones. So anyway, but this is the freedom of price. From 2009 until one, we are not rich family, but we rich with love. And we struggle in daily paces life, looking for a job, looking for this and that, tuition, you know. But still, I never give up in American dream, and I, I never give up in love of this country. You said, James, I love this country too. This is not mean England uh, is not ba as bad or not. No, there's no compare between England or this country or any country. But the thing is, for, for me, different than you, James, I consider the country is my country when I stop running from it. When I can find roof, when I can find fucking uh, dream and future for my kids. This is my country. We've been, look at the Middle East. They fight for God. They fight for the leader, for the imam for a thousand years. And where is the fucking people life? Nothing. Look at to Iran. Look at to Saudi. Look at to Iraq. Everywhere. The leaders, they fucking educate people. They destroy them. All this kind of things. And I came here where I belong. I came here where I have no home. I found my home. So... I don't want to, I mean, there's a thousand topics I want to cover, but I know your time is. So, James, for you, brother. Yeah, no, but thank you for that, because it's, it's something you need to, people need to hear. I mean, you know, there's a difference between nationalism and patriotism, you know, and I think patriotism is what you and I are feeling. And, I'm, you know, I again, I think even when I was back at home, I didn't think of myself as English. Like, there's two rocks in the middle of the ocean on our own, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, I consider those my people. You know, and then when I travel, I travel around the world, live in Australia, live in Japan, live in all these places. Those are all my people, you know. But when you move to another country or you were born in another country and you start buying into that fanatical philosophy that your country is insert negative thing here, unless you are actually in a place that's hanging people in the, the courtyards and throwing gays off off roofs and throwing acid into women's faces then yeah you maybe you're going to question the ethics of that but what we have here what we have in the uk and in australia new zealand and all these you know beautiful places around the world that also have freedom you know you're part of the solution and the the more effort you put into tearing that nation apart through your social media fields or you know whatever the less time you're actually spending in making your own country better. And I think that's what we need to realize is listen to these immigrant stories and realize how amazing it is and ask ourselves, well, why are people fleeing from Mexico 
to come to our country? And is there even, a, we'll get into next, is some of our policy from 100 years ago causing violence that's making people flee? You know, whether it's like you said, the British and the ripple effect of my ancestors and what we did around the world, whether it's drug prohibition and what that's done to the Mexican-American border. I mean, you know, so the more that we become part of the solution, which is exactly what you're talking about and being proud of where you live, then the more we can affect change. But if we just allow ourselves to be divided and then just bitch at each other, you're just making this place worse. That's why Johnny's story is so important, in my opinion. And it just, uh, and there's a thousand stories, you know, similar in that you're, you're leaving someplace for a better, you know, hope. And, you know, we can't like hide or try to brush aside our history. I mean, warts and all, like, you know, go back. Yeah, we had slavery in this country. It was fucking appalling, man. Like the when the Constitution, you know, haggling over, you know, in, in 1787, haggling over, uh, if, you know, if they're gonna have slavery or not, you know, because a bunch of people saw the hypocrisy, and we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, you know, or all mankind is created equal. Uh, you know, you, you see the internal struggles, or you read about the internal struggles, and we ended up making the wrong choice with uh, three-fifths compromise and all that crap. And we can't, don't try to hide about, you know, hide that. We, we made mistakes, but look at where we're at now and then listen to stories of the Johnnies of the world or that family that's trying to sneak across, you know, down here in Tijuana, from Tijuana to the States. And, you know, why? Or people coming from North Korea or China or any place around the globe, they all have a much different perspective than this, and I guess this academic, really kind of this upper middle class white phenomena of just hatred for the country. Uh, when when you hear Johnny's story and others like it, you realize like, damn man, like, yeah, we got some we got some warts, but you know, if <laughs> the good definitely outweighs the bad, and but we should continually be striving to improve, and you know, actually live up to the ideals set forth way back when. And uh, instead of giving it lip service, like, you know, fix the things we screwed up, but move on, man. Like it's, uh, it's just, there, there's, you know, welcome to all the people, man, you know, and, and uh, hear their stories and fix the wrongs that, you know, I don't know. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't think like, it's so simple. Like we are in the same fucking boat. Like, it's look like you guys imagine me, you, James, and Tushin, we're in the same boat. And James, he have legit opinion. And he is the one who's going to save us. Tushin, he have less wisdom opinion. I have idiot opinion. No matter what, if we don't work together, we are not going to survive. And if the boat drone. You're going to die with your amazing logic opinion. And I'm going to die with my stupid opinion. Tushin is going to. So, how we can fucking survive? By listening to each other. Mm-hmm. Realizing that probably you validity yeah. in all of your opinions. Yeah, forgiving. You know what I mean? And like Tushin mentioned it defend the police. When I hear defund the police, if anyone say it in front of me, I will tell him, oh, you want to steal. 
something. This is a simple reaction from me. Because I came from country, I have I carry my gun, and if anyone, if any cops stop me and I suspicious him, I will kill him, or they can kill me. Do you want to live that chaos? So defend the police is not solution, is punishment. And the punishment came from any professional, uneducated result. And instead of that, you have to find the roots of the problem. Okay, yeah, there is police making mistake. Yes. By the way, I have my shirt supporting the police. But by the way, I have DUI by the police. I have a speed ticket, stupid speed ticket in Las Vegas by police. But I still consider without the law enforcement, we will, we will, we will live in chaos. And if we want to have safe life, we should support them. And we should point where is the issue, the issue in the training, the issue in the tools. And I talk with Kato, friends of mine, Marcos and his friend. And I told him, I told him, hey, I support you 100%, but there is some action from the police should be considered. And this is the way how we can move our nation one step above. This is first. Second thing is about slavery. Slavery is no need to be black or white or yellow or whatever to be slave. I mean, I told you guys, in Iraq, we've been slaves to Saddam's for big hate. And now we slave for 100 Saddam's. We are slave to everyone on the government. So... Unless you confess inside yourself you are slave to your greedy and to your need, you will never be slave. If you win this struggling with yourself, you will win. And you will prove yourself in the community and you will make people, force people to respect you. But if you live as victim and living by history, what happened? Yeah, pretend fucking came to Middle East and divide all the Arabic country, Sakis Pico. Do you want me to keep trying to that history? Or do you want me to keep up, educate myself and my family, and move on and to be positive in, on the community? So there's difference between the reaction, the reaction being victim, no one give a shit, or you can be in positive community, everyone can listen to you. Absolutely. I mean, it's how you react to it. I think that's a very valid point. And as you mentioned, Jason, I mean, slavery was horrendous. And I think, you know, as you said, pigmentation is irrelevant. They just had human beings to work for free, which is a horrendous thing. And I think that a misunderstood concept is that only a few benefited from it. And yes, the ripple effect, this became a wealthy nation. But ultimately, when you look at slavery, you know, in Britain, we were one of our deepest economic times. So some of the poorest people were then. So only few people were, were getting rich. But even if you reverse engineer the British Isles, we were raped and pillaged by everyone around us. The Romans, the Danes, the, you know, the, 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 um, Vikings, you know, I mean, all these different groups came and, and did the same thing. So yeah, you, if it's not a very, very recent thing, we have to grow from it and choose to 
to to not be attached to that, but not not ignore it either. James, you can be slave when you can ignore your tomorrow, when you live in your day. But if you on tomorrow, if you on the future, you will do everything to free yourself. You, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like look at to me. This is how I think about slavery. If my wife is still in Mosul, she will have no life. She will never have the freedom to see herself as successful woman on the community. She will never be in the college. She will never have an opinion. And when she lived here, this is kind of freedom from slavery. Slavery of the culture we used to have it in, in, in our countries. I'm not denying people severing when they are slave for two, three hundred years is miserable. No one agree about it. But this is not something we will keep talking about it, cry about it, act victim about it without find some kind of advanced solution to on tomorrow. Because w- without tomorrow, we will keep giving excuses to the people to use us more and more and more. Absolutely. 100%. Well, speaking of not being defined by the past, a lot of a lot of military first responders that have come on here, the transition out is a struggle. A lot of us identify as, you know, the the seal, the firefighter, the cop, and that's a, a big issue. We're leaving the tribe, you know, we're leaving the purpose. Um so uh, just to kind of, you know, wrap this conversation up, talk to me about, you know, the, the struggles and, and the Ibogaine that, that your community seems to be finding great success in. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we, you know, we're pulling out of Afghanistan soon, or we have mostly, but there's still, still got soft guys there. Uh, I mean, that's 20 years of combat, man. That's going to leave a mark. And, uh, and so, you know, I guess it was about 2006, seven. We, I started seeing the paradigm shift in the mental health aspect of it. Uh, you know, getting really, uh, focused on making sure the guys and gals coming back from overseas, uh, physically are healthy, but also mentally as well. And we started doing, uh, like a third location decompression stop where you, you know, fly from Iraq, stop at a, Germany or someplace like that, spend a couple days, talk to the docs just to break the ice and just to decompress and come home. And then, uh, which was great. I think it did help, but you know, you see a lot of, uh, there was still a lot of issues that, you know, might manifest themselves in alcohol abuse or, or destructive behavior that are actually, you know, you know, caused by PTSD or TBI or just the, you know, the ridiculous level of cortisol, uh, people are, you know, spewing out of their system, uh, because it's time. And as guys get out, you got two things happening at once. You have this, uh, mental health issues that haven't been fully addressed. And then, you know, so many people in, in the community, their whole identity is tied to being a seal or a cop or whatever else. And, uh, and so that's a real struggle for them too. You know, you're kicked to the curb and, uh, you were something special and now you're, just an average citizen and it, that the, the confluence of those can be 
uh, overwhelming. Uh, me, me personally, like when I said it was time to go, I mean, I did 27 years. So like, it was time to go, man. Like I didn't look back and I'm not, I've not been one ever to really look back when I make a decision, cool, move on. And I'm, I'm doing this now. I didn't struggle so much with that, but what I, Jason, sorry for interrupting you. I love when you uh, describe it, why you want to change the title because you feel there is no more challenge and you start yeah. feeling comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I got out. It was, I was too comfortable. <laughs> I need to be, I, I got to be pre perpetually be uncomfortable. Otherwise I stagnate. And so getting out and becoming a, working in Silicon Valley was about the most uncomfortable thing I could pick. Uh, but I have seen, you know, just remarkable success with the psychedelics and some of it's, you know, uh, you know, the Ibogaine program is absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, it's everybody I've seen go through it, uh, comes out just like a better version of themselves. Right. You know, like it, it just kind of, gets rid of all this excess baggage and things that are dragging you down. And every individual I've seen uh, go through the program comes back, like I said, just a them, but just better. And I've also seen people do it uh, without a structured program. You know, I think, uh, you know, you know, the, the going, taking a large dose of psilocybin uh, in the right environment. I've seen guys do that on their own and lo and behold, you know, guys who are drinking a handle of vodka every night are clean and sober. And, and so it's, uh, and if you look at the history of him, I mean, it's, you know, psychedelics have been a part of human culture since, you know, be before recorded history. And, you know, if you look at it here, uh, the history of it, it just got kind of got hijacked by the government at some point in the fifties. And I, I'm, I'm, it's exciting to see that the, benefits of it and the stigma around it uh are, are changing or the, the benefits are being highlighted and the stigma is starting to change because it, it can help so many people and not just the the military and the first responders but anybody who's been through i think anybody i mean is gonna can benefit from it uh and just open up your uh your mind a bit more so it's huge it can like anything it can be abused but uh I know I certainly felt that for the Ibogaine, like I never fucking want to do that again, you know? And uh, so I, I don't like, you know, like God, no, but it, I'll it do helped. it again. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> but, uh, DMT again. That was cool. <laughs> so Johnny, what was your experience just to kind of wrap this all up? Okay. So is before that, I just want to mention uh, Taco. So Taco, he's fucking, man, I love this guy. So he teach me a lot, and he's the one when I need brother. He's the one over there, waiting, standby. Name it, amazing. He get people from 2004. We worked together. He gave me the weapon. He gave me the guidance, and he taught me how to be better person. So anyway, when I came to United States with thousand mission at least, I have BTSD, and but I didn't feel it because the way of living matched my dream. So this is kind of healing me up until when the protest 
riot, all this shit happened. Me and my wife, we went to uh, uh, La Mesa and we saw like they turn up the chase building and I hear my wife, she started crying and was like, what's going on with you? She says, for some reason, I remember what happened in our city, Mosul, when Qaeda, the bad guys, started controlling the Mosul and burning and destroying everything. She said, I had the same feeling, so I couldn't stop myself crying. And when I hear that, it looked like it tricked the PTSD on me, and I started like suspicious people targeting me, follow me. I took different left turn, right turn, all this kind of things. So I started drink. I started like wake up five o'clock in the morning. This is not mean I'm not drinking before, but I'm getting so weird. I'm Johnny Walker, of course, I'm drinking. But I'm getting so weird and in worse way. And this is where I called Taco. I told him, bro, this is what's going on with me. He says, okay, brother, stand by. Within 30 minutes, he back to me and he said, Johnny, you're going to, we have retreat. Uh, we, we're going over, um, crossing the border and it, it will be fine. Okay, but I never used a drug before. I smoked a little bit, but it's kind of like, what's going on? But I drink like motherfucker, you know? So anyway, I went to this retreat and they have no background about the drugs. I never used a drug in my life. I never hear, hear about Abu Gain. The team, they send me a lot of education, PowerPoint, uh, CDs, doctor talk to me and explain to me, but all of it is fucking in English. And I barely understand nothing. And for me, if I read first, second, third line, I will f fall asleep. So basically, I went with no background about it. And I just hear like four or five team guys, they talk about it. We change the opinion for me. I have nothing to change. But I, I know inside me, I need help. It's time to fucking seek and help. So anyway, eight o'clock, we have meeting. This is Friday. And we sit, five of us, and they bring plastic cane. Each one of the cane, they have uh, two pills on it. And I switch it with... My friend, without you know, it looks like maybe give me big dose. I don't know. I have to switch it just to feel safe. We have this Middle East conspiracy. So anyway, we took it. And I went upstairs with the other team guys. And there is everyone with the hard device and nurse and a guy he's watching. So we took care of us. Our coordinator, team guy, watching us too. And I'm just thinking, shit. This is good business. If I want to do this business, I'm going to collect. This is what I'm thinking that time. Wrong, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. And if I do this and that, blah, 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 from 8.30, from 8.20 all the way to 9 o'clock, and her, this is where my journey starts. Boom. And it's fucked me over the way how it starts because I have no description for what happened to me. And it's take me everywhere. One of the things I succeed in my journey and again is so funny journey to me. Does it bring a lot of sadness, memories? It looks like you have a train and you control the train and go to your brain and check all the forgetting shelves. 
you can go anywhere. But sometimes the problem is when you go to that memory, if you don't control it, you will take another bath. So what I do, I build a project in my mind. Every time I go to that darkness, I head back to the project. I start building it. So anyway, from 9 o'clock until 8 o'clock in the morning, huge things in my life. Huge. Something I will never, ever think I will remember that. And all that, I can describe it for myself. I'm not going to describe it to public. I want to keep it to myself, some of it. But on the morning, 8 o'clock, I feel I'm, I had enough. Wake up and I went and I just want to eat. I eat like fucking organic food. I just want to eat and want to see what's going on. And after three hours, the other four guys, they came down and we just talked. And at that time, I didn't need my classes and I have knee surgery. I didn't feel that much pain. And we just talked. We shared an idea, this and that. But for me, I'm just study it with myself what's going on what happened there is huge things going on inside me i can't feel it so next day the dmt5 scary fuck we sit together and they says oh who's gonna be the first one they says johnny you're fucking badass it's like motherfuckers are not fucking badass you send me to something i never tried before in my life and just because I'm fucking bad, I'm not fucking badass. I'm fucking pussy. You go first. No, no, no. You go. So I went and I sit with the lady. She's amazing. Amazing lady. By the way, all the crew. Yeah, it's business, but it's more human than business to them. And they took care of the human side inside you. They don't give a shit about your rank, who you are, whatever, they just human to human is, is amazing. So I took a small dose and there's nothing. Another small dose, nothing. Third dose, nothing. I start believing I'm fucking badass. Like, fucking give me a big dose. I took the big dose, the DMT5, and this is where I start feeling my body start disappearing and I feel the death. And no matter how much I describe to you now, I'm not going to describe it right. Because remember Abu Game, I can describe it because it came to me as a memory, as a human language. DMT5 came to me as an idea. I feel it as an idea. The death came to me as an idea, not as a language. Something human never covered it on the language. So if you ask Dushin, he will tell you different. If you ask thousand and thousand people, everyone, he will tell you different experience about DMT-5. Because it came to us as an idea and the human went translated, translated in different way. So anyway, I took the big dose once and it's like, you know what? I had enough. I saw some fucking weird things, some stuff. And from that day, which is 17 months ago, until now, I drink nothing. So Johnny Walker, 17 months ago or 18 months ago, now is Johnny Walker. <laughs> there is no... <laughs> and the, and the, so this is how I describe it to you. 
Abu Gain is like, do you remember the seals opened the door with the breach? So Abu Gain is breaching the, the harm thought in your brain. The MT5 construction building, they build the right environment. After that, it belongs to you. How you can uh, find your ways to benefit the experience. And what is helping a lot, working with Taco. And Taco, you know Taco. So he takes me a message. Hey, you want to save lives again? It's like, fucking awesome going overseas. Fuck yeah. Yeah, I'm in, brother. So we finish all the routine paperwork with his company, this and that. And thanks for all the guys helping me. Amazing crew. And first time I escorted one of the the guys, he's addicted to drug, like maybe three hours of driving. Like, what the fuck? What I'm doing? How I'm going to fucking save life? He's a drug addicted. Second one, same thing. Third one, I took him from San Francisco all the way to Las Vegas, which is 10 hours drive. So at the beginning, he had like condition, like when he talk, he tell you something after one hour, you forget it. So the first time when I hear him, I get best. Like, what the fuck? I want to fucking kill myself. Fuck you, Daco. What the fuck, man? You give me this fucking job. But because you have fucking 10 hours, you have to listen. You have to put it in survive mode, which is you have to live with it. So I start hear the guy. And when I start hearing him, he he is considered me as a human, not Johnny Walker, not he have a book movie coming or all this bullshit hero bullshit bullshit no he's talking to human and there's some pain inside him that his kids they don't ask about him his wife left him alone this kind of pure simple feeling we forget it with all the complicated and every one hour when he tell me the story and we go to another subject when we go to the back to the same story he tell me the same story and I start develop my answer. So basically, when we reach to Las Vegas, I feel I am better a human. I feel I did the right things. And this guy, he hugged me. When he hugged me, it looked like I feel fucking my mom hugged me. I feel like so emotion, so amazing feeling. And at the way back, I didn't stay. They asked me if I stay in hotel or something. He's like, fuck, no, I want to go back home. So I drive go back home just to filter the feeling from my brain. And I compare what he says when save lives, like, yeah, this is fucking save lives because this is the only job. You don't have a credit. You do it to human to human, not by I'm doing, I'm working for Touche. I'm going to find jackpot. Oh, good job. This is reward, this and that. No, this is, you do as what's, human beings supposedly to do it. And also, every time when I saw cases and take them with me, talk with them, is kick me away distance from go back to drink bath. So it's, it's, it's weird, awesome experience. 
Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, you know, both for, for kind of telling your story on that. Cause I think it's so important. Um, I'm going to kind of wrap it up now because I've been taking your time for over two hours now. So just quickly, Johnny, you talked about the book and the movie. So where can people find the book and then tell me about the movie? Oh, the book is, I think in Amazon, eBay, I think Joe and it's worth it to read. It's a great book. I'm not gonna marketing. I'm not gonna marketing my book. It's worth it to read. Is his journey of a human to land of freedom, and is show the brotherhood, no matter what race, what religion, and movie hopefully coming soon. We are at the final negotiation uh, level. Everything goes well. The people, uh, they want to invest uh, the book to be a movie. They believe on it, and they love the story, and they love the message behind it, and they love the timing. So we will see, brother. Beautiful. Well, I love the book. I thought it was uh, it was very well written. Obviously, it was co-written. Otherwise, it would have been fuck, fuck, fuck for most of the uh, <laughs> the pages. <laughs> but um, I apologize. <laughs> no, it's good. Like I said, this I have it explicit on this for a reason because I send the tend to let them slip myself. Um, no, but joking apart, the the social media. Where's the best place for people to to reach out to you or follow you online? Uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I I am new in Snapchat. Every time I want to take picture, and this flower came to my head, <laughs> so I try to keep it away. <laughs> yeah. And Jason, same for you. If people want to learn more about you, find you online. Where are the best places? Uh. Usually, I don't have a Facebook account, so uh, LinkedIn, certainly, and then, uh, yeah, Instagram is too schmush. Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you both. I mean, the the two parallels it unfolded beautifully. The, to, to watch your trajectories separately and then where they intersected and then where they rejoined again um, has been extremely powerful, getting, you know, one perspective from a Navy SEAL leader, the other perspective from you know, a, a leader as well, but also an immigrant into this country, the, the healing element of Ibergame. We've, we've hit so many, so many powerful areas. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. Great. Thank you, James. And wish, wish you up again on the MT5 too. <laughs>